presenting this month's special series, Focus on Sports Medicine. We're talking to experts in the field about sports and exercise-related injuries and the latest advances in diagnosis, treatment, and prevention to help your patients stay active. How far have we come in our ability to repair cartilage and regenerate tissue? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Sherwin Ho from the University of Chicago, and joining me today to discuss cartilage repair strategies is Dr. Riley Williams. Dr. Williams is an Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the Weill Medical College of Cornell University and Director of the Institute for Cartilage Repair at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Thanks again for having me. We're talking today about repairing cartilage in knees, particularly in our athletes and in our elite athletes, and it's an exciting time to be a cartilage surgeon trying to repair these once career-ending injuries and now getting close to the holy grail of restoring normal cartilage in the knees of our healthy athletes. When we talk about allografts, Dr. Williams, you're talking about taking tissue from a donor, similar to the transplants people hear about, heart transplants and kidney transplants, but what's different about cartilage transplants that makes it accessible to more people here in the U.S.? Well, people don't realize that when they agree to donate their organs, they're donating their, their joints too. So that's, that's good for us because it gives us the, the availability of tissue to use. And typically you, you can even split the knee cartilage from, from a donor so that you have several specimens that can be used. The nice thing about a, a cartilage transplant is there's a lot of homology or similarity between individuals such that the bone which, which needs to heal once a transplant is done is very similar between you and I. And so it doesn't require that you take any immunosuppressive-type drugs to get a transplant. It may take a little bit longer for that bone to heal between the donor and the host, but eventually it does heal, providing a nice method to restore cartilage in the, in the joint without causing too much disruption to the underlying bone. So in the first iteration of the so-called OATS procedure, the osteoarticular transplant procedure, where we would take plugs from one area of the knee, the patient's knee, and plug them into a place where they really needed it, sort of like the hair plug technique, you're now talking about taking it from a donor, someone who's donated their organs to medicine, and implanting that. And you're, you're telling the audience that these grafts then are incorporated and become a living part of their knee. That's right. And, and have you seen any rejection phenomenon like we worry about, uh, or rather do our patients have to be on any anti-rejection medications, steroids, et cetera, like they would with, say, a kidney transplant? A definitive no, and, and that's been borne out with not only with our group of patients here, but with Dr. Alan Gross and Convery and Bugby, who, are, who largely published a lot on the use of bulk allografts in orthopedic surgery. So, again, it, that just makes it all the more accessible for the clinician to use it. The second part, really, I mean, the first part, really, you have a situation where commercial entities now are able to distribute these graphs. They quality test them for viral and, and bacterial contaminants. There is a wait of approximately three weeks before clinicians can receive these graphs. And as such, the, the surgeries need to be done on an urgent basis, not an emergency basis, because, again, they are, they are alive. So the, the more time the, the graphs sit around, the less viable or less live cells there are in the graph. No one knows what the critical graph viability need be, but, but certainly the group of patients that we've looked at and continue to look at over the past few years or 10 years or so have done quite well. And my anecdotal 
analysis would suggest that those initial graphs that we were putting in were not very viable at all. So I believe the method has gotten better, and I just sense that this is what probably will be for some time a strategy that we use. But but as you as you hinted earlier, I think there's some other things coming down the pike that we should we should talk about that would be of interest. In any patient population, and mine included, there's some reluctance to using someone else's tissue, not only for the obvious risk of the possibility of disease transmission, however minimal that is, it, it has happened through human error, et cetera. So there is that out there that, that some of the patients are resistant to, which leads us to sort of the next solution to that problem, which would be, is there a man-made substance that can we can use in substitute to patch these damaged areas of articular cartilage? Yeah, you know, there are, and that's really where I think the field is, is going. If you take a look at Europe, for better or for worse, they don't have the FDA regulations with regard to the application medically of new products. Every country has their own, and, and things are a little bit more free and loose in Europe, so we kind of can use them as a vetting area, so to speak, to sort of see which type of strategy is working well. So there are really, really a couple of strategies that are what we're going to call scaffold-based or as you suggested, man-made. One is the use of simple scaffolds without any kind of supplementation or cells. There is a scaffold here in, in the U.S., a TrueFit plug, which is made by a company called Smith & Nephew, a, a well-renowned orthopedic vendor. And while there's not a whole lot of clinical data out published on it, the, the simple premise behind it is that they initially sold this device as a way to fill the actual donor defects in the autographed OATS procedure. So they really marketed it as a bone void filler, and what we and other surgeons around the country noticed was that there was a, a fairly reasonable fill of repair tissue where these plugs were placed. And the design of the plugs was biphasic. They had a quote-unquote cartilage layer on top and a bone layer on the bottom, and visually to the surgeon, it was very appealing to use. And We, we have about 150 patients or so who receive these plugs, and, and we're just being very cautious about Reporting on them early, I think the anecdotal reaction around the country for surgeons who've used them is that, oh, they're, they're soft or, or they don't look so good on MRI. But, but the clinical results, I, I believe, have been pretty consistent. So while patients have felt really good, I think that the jury's still out as to whether or not this will become a true established repair strategy until we really can sort of better understand what is the maturation cycle of these plugs and and who should get them and in what configuration. I think all that is still unknown at the current time. I think this comes under the broad field of what we've termed biologics in sports medicine or orthopedic surgery. And along those lines, we're talking about a man-made plug or scaffold that mimics the structure of our bone and, and cartilage, but in which we rely on the body to fill with the person's own cells and that can be somewhat haphazard. Sometimes it turns into cartilage, sometimes it turns into scar tissue, and sometimes into bone. And it's not always reliably exactly what we want. What is on the horizon that can help these plugs heal or grow back to what was originally there in the first place, bone on the undersurface and cartilage on the articular or joint surface? Uh, you know, you, you bring up a good point. I think there's going to be some type of man-made plug or scaffold that's going to really try to take advantage of these modifying agents, growth factors, BMPs and, and the like, things that are known to in embryonic development as well as in the lab, turn these pluripotential cells into cartilage, into bone, etc. And those types of substances are easily loaded onto these scaffolds. 
there aren't any of those around yet. I have just anecdotally for, for the past three years used the platelet, peripheral blood platelet concentrate and soaked my plugs in them prior to implantation in hopes of again attracting these stem cells into the area of repair where the defect is landed. And again, I can't say I haven't done a hard analysis of this, but roughly in the group of patients that we have, I've been able to split half of the patient population with, half of the population without. So we should be able to do a hard analysis of if there was any effect from this one way or another. But you know, just to sort of change gears a little bit, one of the strategies which has really held promise in Europe and is now just making its way to the U.S. has really been the, the use of kind of modifying that ACI or autologous chondrocyte implantation procedure we talked about by combining those cells with a scaffold, much like these plugs we were talking about. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, a channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Sherwin Ho, and joining me today to discuss cartilage repair strategies is Dr. Riley Williams, Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the Weill Medical College and Director of the Institute for Cartilage Repair at the Hospital for Special Surgery. Dr. Williams has been a thought leader in the area of cartilage repair strategies for a number of years, and we've been discussing new strategies for getting articular cartilage to grow in defects that have been caused by injury, sports, and other insults to the knee. Dr. Williams, we've been talking a little bit about this modification of the types of cartilage or the types of cells we put into knees, and we're discussing the procedure called ACI. Well, the ACI procedure, again, and I think, sure, when you agree, is outside of a few specialized centers where they're, in the U.S. at least, where they're performed with some frequency, it isn't really what I would call a primary treatment strategy. What the ACI procedure did was really open up the door to the use of a patient's own cells for treatment of these lesions. And we've gone through what's been described as the second generation ACI, wherein instead of using the patient's own periosteum or their, their bone lining as a patch to cover these cells, the doctor would use instead a man-made synthetic or bovine or porcine type 1 collagen patch. And, and the advantage of that was that it, it really did not have as a, as a patch the reactivity or sensitivity of periosteum, which, as you know, is a very active and irritable live substance, so to speak. So that was thought to cause a lot of the problems with the first-generation ACI with specific regard to the development of scar tissue and, and hypertrophy or enlargement of these grafts in patients. And in fact, the second-generation ACI, at least as it was reported out of Europe, had a much better reoperation rate. But again, at the end of the day, you're looking for fill. You need to fill the defect. We've consistently, in all our cartilage repair procedures, have associated percentage fill on MRI on a follow-up with good clinical results. And the percentage fill, at least in, in those few studies which have looked at even the first and second generation ACI, is as highly variable. So the third generation ACI, and there are several products which, which fall into this characterization, the hyalograph C, which is a combination of hyaluronic acid and the patient cells as a patch, the MACI or a matrix-associated ACI where they take a collagen scaffold and seed it with the cells. And then here in America, uh, I'm involved with a trial with an implant called NeoCart, which again is a type 1 slash 2 collagen scaffold that is seeded with the patient's own cells. And the neat thing about, about all these things is that you're able to then not only use the cells, but you're literally filling the hole with a patch. So there's no sewing of a cover over a blank hole, which is a potential space, you're filling the hole with something 
which is substantive. It's much more satisfying for you as the doctor to look in at the end of your procedure and to see something there as opposed to hoping that something's going to grow. Sure. So you're talking about replacing the cartilage defect now with a structural element that also has a patient's own cells in it. And that's very exciting that, you know, if you were to design the ideal repair procedure, that would be something you could do arthroscopically or minimally invasive, something that would provide some structure and support for the cells, but at the end of the day would replace that tissue with the patient's own cells, his own tissue, as opposed to, you know, a donor's tissue, et cetera. And I think the only drawback that some of us might have is that that might still be a two-stage procedure where you'd have to harvest the cells and grow them. Uh, Any way that you can think of in the future that might lead us to a one-stage procedure where you do an arthroscopy, you come upon a cartilage defect, is there something on the horizon whereby we might be able to one day do this all in a one-stage procedure for the athlete? I believe there is. There's actually a product which was, I believe, helped at least in part developed by Brian Cole, who you know very well, and where one would uh, go into a knee and mince a little bit of cartilage again from an area that does not weight bear, and then that minced cartilage is placed on a scaffold, and the scaffold is placed into the knee. Again, there's no published workout on this. I know that is in in FDA trials as well. But to get back to the ACI, I mean, there's work in Belgium by Peter Verdonk, who's using allogenic cells or allograft cells, and with the thought that he could use a allogeneic or allograft cell line, which would be perpetuated, and used to seed these scaffolds. We know that cartilage cells are, are really not very reactive cells. They don't cause a big antigenic reaction, and they're tolerated well, as evidenced by the success of these fresh allografts. So he's been able to clinically implant these allogeneic cells using a, I want to say it's a hyaluronic vehicle. It almost looks like caviar, quite frankly, the little balls. And, and he implants them into a defect and again sews them underneath a patch. And that, is, that actually has worked out very well. So one could imagine a circumstance where a lab could perpetuate a line of these allogeneic cells and, and you could order a patch of a certain size that would be shipped to you and it would be put in on one stage without the need to do a, a pre-stage a harvest of a patient's cells. I think, quite frankly, if the, these third generations work out here in the States or in Europe, that you'd likely see some melding of that technology at some point in the near future. I think these are exciting times for cartilage repair and and particularly folks in the sports medicine field. These are exciting times for knee surgery. And it's folks like my guest, Dr. Williams, who are at the forefront of looking at some of these newer techniques that hopefully in the next 10 to 15 years will lead us to that holy grail, restoration of a normal articular cartilage in knees. Riley, I want to thank you for being my guest today. We've been discussing cartridge repair strategies, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Sports Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.